I, I could do this intro in my sleep, and sometimes I do. <laughs> I used to practice it, you know, a bunch of times before every podcast, and now I'm just like, all right, whatever. Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products. And of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we're not talking about that today. Instead, today, we're talking to Martin Liu, the CEO of a company called Comtrex, which is a tech-enabled rail logistics provider. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, just tell us a little bit about Comtrex and you know, kind of how you got there. Yes, absolutely. So Comtrex was started back in 2017. And in a prior life, I was a commodities trader for JP Morgan Bear Stearns on the coal and environment markets desk. Um, and we were moving millions of tons of coal a year. And I saw uh, several inefficiencies with how shippers interface with the industry. And the uh, vision was to create uh, a, a digital ecosystem or a platform that connected the supply and demand side to the industry. Um, because I saw that the puck was headed in the direction where eventually there was going to be one centralized platform or database where shippers would have to go in order to be able to connect with all the rail serve terminals, ports, warehouses, uh, lessors, and service providers and railroads. Um, and they, they ruled the, the concept was to create a very simple way for, for these shippers to connect Visa marketplaces, uh, create a very sort of vast knowledge base or repository of information so that as the expertise leaves the industry, there is a centralized uh, corpus of knowledge that shippers can always tap into. And then uh, number three, uh, really sort of making uh, connectivity uh, much, much easier. Instead of having to pick the phone up and have to wait to a conference to meet somebody, you can do it all through an electronic uh, platform. So, so let me see if I understand this correctly. So you're trading coal and other commodities, you know, real man kind of materials, right? And then a lot of it being shipped over rail. And you realize there was this gap in the marketplace that was really, you know, the, the shippers and other people were kind of disconnected. And your service kind of connects the two together. Is that how it works? That, that's exactly right. So um, in the trading world, timing is of the essence. So anytime there was a position you wanted to put on, uh, you had to figure out all the different inputs for that delivered cost. So the, everything from the barging, the freight, the trucking, the rail piece. Uh, and the rail piece was always the part that was the toughest to put in place because of the opacity that existed in the industry. Uh, and then you wouldn't know who to call if you weren't a part of the industry. And so sitting at one of the largest banks in the world, and I was having issues with it, I just I, I just foresaw, I, if I'm having issues, uh, there must be shippers of, of, of all sizes that are probably experiencing these same issues. And then as time goes on and, and you, you didn't have those relationships, that, that issue was only going to get exacerbated over time. Uh, just like every other industry that was getting effectively enabled by technology, rail was just probably one of the, the modes of transportation that didn't catch up yet because in, in trucking, there were load boards. And in ocean-going freight, there were very liquid exchanges and platforms, even in hedging instruments. And in rail, nothing was created at the time that I started Comtrax. So you're focused on rail, at least initially. Correct. And I know there's other parts of transportation that we're going to get to. But tell me a little bit about the rail industry. There's been a lot of consolidation, you know, going on in the industry. You know, how much material is, is sent through rail these days? So when you think about the, the goods that move over uh, land, so there's only two ways really to move freight over land. It's, it's truck and rail. About 40% of all goods that move on land are going to move by rail. And then when you look at commodities uh, specifically, so you think about your your, your co consumers and producers of 
of raw materials. That's closer to 60% of all goods that are more commodities that are moved by rail. Rail has a significant tailwinds behind it because of the sustainability angle. You take uh, effectively, it's four trucks for every one rail car when you're moving freight. So rail is about 75% more sort of sustainable or carbon friendly uh, than trucking. So right now there is a big push going on in the industry for there to be a lot more conversion of truck lanes to rail lanes because of the the the, the significant sort of push to, that ESG is having across the world. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that when people think about, I mean, I commute via train, so I'm, you know, involved with trains a lot, but I feel like trucks are so visible because everybody's driving around and seeing them all over the place that it just feels like everything gets shipped via truck. But, you know, 60% of commodities, that's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. And the the two primary parameters when you're a shipper and you're thinking about moving by rail, what, what is really the filter as to decide whether it makes sense to move by rail. Number one is distance. Um, so any freight that's moving 500, 600 miles plus, uh, ch- rail is going to be the cheapest per ton per gallon um, sort of mile because it r- really, you know, it, it, you don't need uh, – if you're moving coal, for example, coal is uh, at the consumption level. You know, U.S. consume about 600, 700 million tons of year of coal, and there's just not nearly enough trucks to be able to move 600 million tons of coal across the right. U.S. And it's just not, not – the, the infrastructure of the U.S. isn't fit for that. So number one is, is the um, distance. And then number two is the volume of product that you're moving. So when you're talking about large commodities like coal or oil or chemicals, plastic pellets, sealed lumber, those type of commodities that move in high volume, there's just not enough trucks to be able to facilitate that. So that's why you know trains – and then think about where trains go, right? They're going a lot of times in the very rural areas. They're going through mountains. They're going through areas where there's just not a lot of infrastructure. So trains can do a lot of uh, sort of things at a much cheaper cost that, that trucks cannot do. So, so it's cheaper. It's more environmentally friendly. Correct. It, and it, so it sounds great. I mean, of course, you can't have the train come to your door. But besides that, you know, what are the disadvantages of rail? I think we just said, so the rail is for the middle mile of the move. That's where rail competes with, with trucking is that middle mile piece. But the disadvantage uh, of rail, and this is something that uh, a part of the supply industry called transit kind of addresses and solves, is that first and last mile piece. Rail is, is, is expensive to be able to implement or to install uh, at your facility. So if you don't have mm-hmm. a rail serve facility, if you're not going to invest the millions of dollars into investing into that rail spur and all the different um, components of, of that rail spur to be able to facilitate rail coming in and out, the way to, to be able to move freight by rail is through transiting. So you would truck your product to a transit facility and then load it onto a, a, a rail car at the facility. So that's probably the biggest constraint is just the, the CapEx investment uh, that would go into being able to move freight by rail at your facility. Uh, and then also there's not as many telematics uh, that exist today as there are on trucking. So you can track trucks in real time. Tracking of rail cars is done in near real time, uh, but telematics mm. is something that is coming um, but but that if you need something and that's that's some real time tracking capability, rail uh, isn't quite there yet, but it'll, it will soon be there because there are companies out there that are proliferating IoT sensors so that you can track in real time. Right, right, right. You just throw an Apple tile on it or whatever those things are called. That's exactly but right. let's go back to transloading because I'm really interested in this. A lot of people have been talking about transloading. So just to, just in case people aren't familiar with it, you know, just maybe tell people what it is. So transloading is a, a, a pretty simple concept. It's really just moving freight from one mode of transportation to another. So uh, there's two different contexts that you can think of transloading. And number one is, you know, any container that's coming in from overseas so think, you know, containers coming in from China to Los Angeles uh, or, or somewhere on the West Coast, those containers uh, get transloaded off of a ship 
uh, then onto land, and it gets drayed uh, to a warehouse uh, or put onto an intermodal train, then moved to you know wherever it's going in the U.S., Canada, or Mexico. So that's one component of transiting. The other component of transiting is, is commodity sort of transiting, where you're moving actual physical goods. So whether that be liquids such as oil uh, or chemicals, whether it be hazmat or non-hazmat chemicals, or if you're talking about the dry bulk products, such as lumber, uh, steel, non-ferrous metals, or any type of metal. Um, so there's, those are the two assets that, those are two different sort of buckets of, of transiting. Um, the one that probably is most obvious to everybody is the containers that you see at any port uh, sure. across the, the, the country. Uh, the one that's probably less obvious is when you're talking about, you know, um, moving liquids or, or moving dry bulk products. But it's a very critical piece uh, to, to the supply chain. Um, and it's something that doesn't have a lot of visibility. But an analogy that I always like to use is airports. The more nodes that you have on the network, so the more regional airports you have, the more people that you could move across the different regions of, of North America. So for, for rail, uh, one of the largest and most important mechanisms for them to be able to grow their footprint is transiting because not everyone who's going to – everyone isn't going to be able to invest or justify the spend on CapEx for putting rail spurs facilities – but if rail does make sense because it, the, 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 the volume is there and then the distance is there, um, transiting is the way for them to do that. And that's why there's a lot of investment going on in, in right now, not only from the, the rail side of the business, but also from the shipper side. There's a lot of diversification that's going so that they don't have to rely so heavily on just trucks moving their product. Uh, either first, middle, or last mile. But now everyone, you know, post-COVID is trying to create more diversification and less concentration of exposure into one mode of transportation. Gotcha. So if I'm a ball bearing manufacturer, and, and we have customers in the ball bearing business, I don't mean that like in a funny way. It's just something that's super important. Actually, there was a lot of news about ball bearings recently because there's a bit of a shortage in the war in Ukraine, but that's a completely different topic. Right. So, But if we're making ball bearings, we might just think, oh, well, trucking is the only way to go. But with transloading, this is the opportunity for us to now get the benefits of the environmental right. um, approach as well as the lower cost of uh, rail transportation. That's exactly right. So flexibility in the supply chain, I think COVID really highlighted how inflexible the supply chain was. And it, it worked great. You know, prior to, to COVID, I think things were, you know, obviously there, there were their bumps. There are still blind spots as far as visibility is concerned in the supply chain. But when, you know, you have a black swan event like COVID happen and, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues with being able to get product to, you know, from origin and destination, all of a sudden you have to look really hard at how you're moving things because you can't uh, think that there is not going to be another black swan event, uh, you know, that comes in. And now that you have shippers, uh, whether it be a big box store or a commodity con consumer producer, um, and now they're getting ahead of that. So they went effectively went from a just-in-time model, which was kind of your more traditional sort of way that you manage supply chain to now what they call a just-in-case model. So you have more areas where you're having products staged so that if there was this major disruption or interruption in your supply chain, uh, you can quickly flex to another mode or to another sort of a hub-and-spoke part of the country. And we've been talking with a lot of people who've been uh, focused on bringing manufacturing back to North America, too. I mean, that, how is that impacting the rail market from your perspective? That's a significant tailwind for rail. There's a lot of onshoring that is happening. Uh, in particular, you're seeing a lot more facilities or manufacturing um, plants coming up in Mexico. Obviously, the reason why people offshore is, is it's all costs, right? It's all labor costs. You know, when you're thinking about where to put that to the auto manufacturing facility or where to put that chemical facility, um, cost is always going to be, you know, top of mind for you. But not only is cost top of mind, but you're also thinking transportation, so, you know, volatility was, was extremely high during COVID. So, and not even, even pre-COVID, 
Um, so if you're moving anything across North America, instead of having to rely on that ocean freight market being consistent and having those volatility, you know, the, the pricing for that market to not have as many swings, there's a lot more that you can control if you're working within the parameters of, uh, of North America. And I, and I think that just, you know, overall politically, there's a real high level of sense of how can we keep jobs in North America? Um, and I think, you know, you, you couple that sort of sense of wanting to do more here in North America, um, not only for economic reasons, but for political reasons. Um, I think there's a major tailwind for, for rail because the primary way that you're going to be able to move those products that you're onshoring in North America, particularly because you're, you're dealing with long distance moves and typically high volume moves, rail is going to be probably the, the biggest beneficiary of that, of, of that movement. Right. And I think combining with the transloading, you know, where you can basically use both, you know, rail and traditional trucking to carry products, it, it makes it a lot more attractive for people because you're right, the container cost, you know, coming from Asia, I mean, it's tripled, it went in half, it went up, it went down That's again. Right. I mean, it's just been all over the place. That's exactly right. So, you, you know, at its peak, it got onto $20,000. And now you're looking at a, you know, thousand to $2,000 container cost from from asia to um to, to the west coast of the united but states the rail prices have been more consistent is that the rail prices yes exactly there's not just that much volatility You're, you have a closed network uh, and you have seven class one railroads and then you have your class two and class three railroads um so it's a pretty contained environment versus you know the the, the ocean and you have several major ocean carriers and it's a it's a it's a, it's a much less volatile market because you have uh, a much more sort of contained network that you're moving goods and, and volume on. So in, in some respects, I think that is that is very helpful because I think supply chain is all about being able to project what that delivered cost is. And, you know, that volatility swing, whether it be in trucking or whether it be in ocean freight, you don't experience that same sort of swings in volatility that you do in rail. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, let me ask you another question. So I, I know in a lot of uh, our customers, we're seeing sort of a generational change. You know, maybe in a family business, the more senior family members are kind of stepping back and there's a new generation coming up and they're implementing new things within the businesses. What are you seeing in, in your sector that way? That, that is actually, you know, I'm glad you touched upon that because that was the primary investment thesis when we started Comtrex um, at the beginning of the uh, of the company when we were raising our first round of investment capital. That was the 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 one of the main theses that we were sort of um, uh, talking to investors about was the fact that there was a major generational shift that's happening. You know, back in 2017, uh, we were looking, you know, forward looking, and 2020 it was going to be 50 percent of the global workforce were going to be millennials. And by the time you got to 2025, 75% of the workforce would, would be millennials. Now, the thing about millennials are they're the first generation of digital natives uh, that, that exist. And obviously, it only has become more progressive now with the Gen Y and Gen Z generations. But if that truly is the case, uh, I think a, a, an important stat that really sort of stood out to me was the average amount of time that a baby boomer stays in, a, in one company or in a job is eight to nine years. Uh, Gen Xer, which is the generation I'm in, is uh, six to seven years and a millennial is uh, two to three years. So if you just take that stat alone and you take that and couple that with the fact that the generational shift is happening at, at, at an enormous amount where, you know, half, if not, you know, two thirds of the workforce will be millennials, you're never going to have a 15 to 20 year fleet manager or supply chain manager ever again at one company. And historically, in rail, most of that is in source. So that knowledge, those relationships, those connections that they have, 
Um, you know, that was never historically an issue because that one person knew their railroad rep or their lessor rep or whoever it is in the, on, on, the, on the service provider side to, to deal with. But um, if you were to take that same sort of position or seat and that knowledge goes away and leaves, leaves that particular company and there's no in succession plan or there's no institutionalized knowledge, there's no very easy way to, for them to be able to pass that knowledge and pass those connections along. So that was what we saw sort of back in 2017 was there was going to be a database or a repository of information and someone was going to need to create a marketplace so that if you stepped into a seat at, you know, you name the big box retailer consumer, um, you wouldn't have to know rail for the past 10 to 15 years to be able to understand all the dynamics and moving by rail. You wouldn't have to have all the relationships there. You could log into a platform, have visibility into the supply side capacity, be able to look at prices and data, and then be able to connect with the supply side. And, you know, the other thing we do is we also have a resource center. We have newsletters that go out to over three times a week. And what the idea was, we need to create this education and this format so that if you're new to rail, you don't have to rely on uh, speaking with that person who's been doing rail for 15 to 20 years. You can go to a centralized repository and be able to learn about it, educate yourself on it, go into a marketplace, connect, negotiate, uh, and be able to execute a transaction with very limited uh, experience and knowledge in, in rail. So, so let me make sure I understand this correctly. So for a big box retailer, let's just call it uh, Target. You know, there was somebody or a couple of people who knew everything about rail and they had it all in their heads and they just knew, you know, what, what to do. But the problem is that, you know, over the coming number of years, a lot of these people are retiring and, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a specialized skill. And so there was no real right. good way for people, the next generation to really know how to do that. That's exactly right. Yeah, and just to, to put a, another finer point on that, um, versus trucking, um, you can pick the phone up and you can call uh, a 3PL, uh, a 4PL, you can call a, a freight broker and have a product moved uh, from Chicago to LA off of a phone call and a quick mm -hmm. onboarding document credit check. That, that isn't possible in, in rail. In rail, uh, you would need to be able to establish a credit line with the class one railroad. You need to be able to figure out how you're going to get rail cars, whether that be system cars in the rail, or if you're moving liquids, you need to figure out how to source those cars from a lessor. Hmm. You need to be able to figure out transloading. If you don't have a rail facility, you need to find a transloader or a port or a warehouse you can move that to. Um, you need to understand how to manage the freight rates and how to manage the merge and how to manage storage. There are all these elements that you need to figure out. And this is one of the reasons why we actually started a logistics services or managed services business last year is because a lot of the, uh, about a one third of all the shippers that use our system have never even moved freight by rail before. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you're a shipper, the goal is to find the cheapest, most delivered cost, and most efficient way to move the product. Sure. And, and their goal isn't to train and become the expert in rail. What they really want to do is they want to be able to find a platform or find a provider they can work with that they know they can trust to be able to move that freight and product while also being educated enough to be able to communicate to the VP or to the management why they're choosing to move that freight by rail. So, you know, the, the, the managed services component with the technology and data, all three of those together are, are where that was really the issue we were trying to solve. So, so it's less expensive, more environmentally friendly, but a little bit harder to do in a way. Correct. Then, yeah, yeah, especially Absolutely. without that specialized knowledge. 
That's exactly yeah. right. And I, and I think once you do have that specialized uh, sort of, uh, you know, knowledge sort of historically, that did become an edge for your business because you did have that ability to flex on rail, where if you didn't know how to do that, you couldn't take advantage of those cost savings that you get with moving freight by rail. So that was really what we were trying to solve. And to speak to the generational shift, um, that was the reason why a lot of uh, shippers were actually coming to us because if you knew rail, there was no reason to be able to use a platform like us. And then all of a sudden what happened was you had this generational shift, probably what you're probably not too different than what you're seeing uh, with your platform, um, that the next generation comes in. They said, well, how can we do this in a better, more efficient, more effective way? And then when they speak to a Spiro or to a Comtrex and they discover how much efficiency and how much data and how quickly they can make decisions based or data driven decisions, it becomes a, a no brainer for whatever the spend is. It, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a just drastic transformation for that business. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's a very analogous to our situation. A lot of, you know, the customers that we're working with, they're dealing with retirement of their sales teams. Uh, and, you know, these are guys who've just been working a territory for 30, 35 years, 40 years, and, and they're going to leave and retire. And, you know, frankly, the company doesn't have a relationship with this, their customers, the salesperson does. And so, uh, you know, getting that institutional knowledge, as you put it, is uh, super critical. So it's like we're kind of approaching the same sort of issue that way. That's exactly right. And the knowledge uh, that you're capturing in the, in the CRM system, the knowledge that we're capturing in our platform really is all driven around data. And the, 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 the way that we make things easier to be able to have data at the fingertips of our shippers is the same thing that you're doing to be able to create a very quick way for shippers to be able to have or, or for your customers to have access so they can make quicker decisions when they're trying to move a commercial deal or a commercial opportunity along the pipeline faster. Yeah, so no, very that's, similar. that it sounds very, very similar. Now, let me ask you this. So I know, you know, like a lot of our customers don't feel like they're technology forward businesses. And it sounds like in, in rail, it's similar. But even in these industries, I feel like AI has really grabbed people's attention. So what has been the attitude in, in your world about AI? I, I think AI hasn't really hit home yet as far as how transformational AI is going to be, not just to our industry, but to every industry and to all of our personal lives. Um, obviously, you know, with the proliferation of chat TBT3 and now, now 4, which just came out you know, a few months ago, um, it's really sort of changing the way people do things, you know, and, and changing the, 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 where, where really that expertise needs to lie in order to be able to execute, you know, sort of effectively. So I do think that AI, and I always reference, you know, when I think AI, I think, you know, it, it sounds like a very complex topic, but I boiled AI down to really simply, it's just a, the science of decision making. You know, how can you make decisions more, more effectively, you know, using as many data points as possible? And what AI is, is really just a co-pilot for the decisions you're making in whatever context you're making them in. Whether that be trying to decide, you know, what's the best, um, you know, sort of restaurant to go to uh, for your date night with your wife or whether it's, you know, who's the, uh, you know, what's the best mode of transportation to move or how should I more effectively uh, be able to move a, a sale on the pipeline? Everybody needs a, a co-pilot to help do things that they can't do as quickly. And, you know, I think this is probably going to be the most transformative technology outside the Internet that we're going to ever see in our lifetime. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I can see, you know, I mean, we, we see applications of it all over the place. I'm sure you do, too. But to, to help people, you know, come up with the routing and planning and optimization of shipment, uh, I think there's a lot that the AI can be doing in that area. 
Absolutely. And the, the timing of AI coming out, there, there's no coincidence that there's this major uptick in, in people using AI, even though it just came out so quickly, and the generational shift that's happening. As you come into, as, as the next generation comes into these seats, these, these business-to-business sort of seats, where there's a lot of industry knowledge, kind of like you were saying, where there's this generational knowledge that, that typically was there, but then someone jumps into that seat and they don't have that background, that knowledge, those, those relationships you know, how do you, how do you sort of make up for that? How do you compensate for those 10, 15 years of experience? Well, how you do that is you lean on data and you lean on data that's going to be effectively processed in, in, in seconds through a co-pilot, you know, in, in the form of AI. And so for us, that's a component of, of, of technology that we are working on integrating into our system because I think, you know, no different than your industry and, and how you're working on integrating AI into the CRM platform, we are also figuring out how can we create a co-pilot experience so that when someone's looking to lease cars, when they're looking to transit, when are looking to store cars, when they're looking for a terminal, a port, a warehouse, um, they don't have to go try to consume information quickly, understand it, process it, talk to people. You know, in theory, that can all be done through a mechanism uh, called AI. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very exciting. Uh, I mean, I I totally agree with you. I feel like we're right on the cusp of what's going to happen with it. And I think one of the exciting things for me and, and people I've been talking with is that nobody really knows exactly how it's going to play out. You know, so That's that exactly that'll right. be super interesting to see. Yeah, and I, and I do think that there's a lot of uh, caution that folks at OpenAI who created ChatGPT and others that are shepherding the AI uh, sort of technology along, uh, I think there's a little caution in making sure that it doesn't roll out too quickly. Sure. Um, because, uh, you know, something that uh, I think comes up quite often is how is the next generation going to learn to think if they can go to an application and they can, the application does all the thinking for them? Mm. Um, you know, unlike when we were growing up where, you know, we actually had to go to the library or you had to, 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 to lean on books and you had to learn in order to write that essay in college. Um, it's different now. I mean, how does a teacher distinguish whether AI or ChatGBT wrote an essay versus whether an actual person wrote the essay? That's, yeah, a, that's well, an unknown. There's, there's a lot of trust issues involved in AI. I mean, I know that anytime the AI is going to make a recommendation, whether it's about who to call or, you know, the best path to take for, you know, something in logistics, like if it gets it wrong, that's a major issue, you know? And so I think one of the challenges that we've been seeing with the ChatGPT style large language models is they do have a tendency to hallucinate a little bit and just pull stuff out of their ear, so to speak. Yeah, and I, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think that is probably in today, in the near term, that's probably the greatest danger that we face is you become to rely on the information and data that's coming through ChatGBT, and it, and it, and it, it provides you with so much information with such conviction that it's correct. And obviously, conviction is used loosely because it's, it's just text that's coming at you. But you rely on it, and you think that when you put in a question that it's going to give you something that's factual. Well, if I go into ChatGBT, and asked, who is Martin Lucy of Comtrex? Uh, it said I worked at uh, these banks that I never worked for. And it also says that I had experience, you know, at other companies that I never worked for. Um, I mean, it captured, you know, maybe 50, 60 percent of the information correctly. But if you didn't know that, if you weren't Martin Lou and you were just typing that into ChatGPT and that was the information that was that you got as a response or a reply back, you would not know if that was true or not. And you would question whether my profile on LinkedIn was actually accurate or not. Yeah, no, I, I like to tell people that it's 100% accurate 70% of the time. 
<laughs> that's that's the way that I really feel about it. So, you know, in some domains that's acceptable, but I think where you and I come from, I think we demand a higher level of fidelity. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're, uh, you know, you're the younger generation coming through, uh, you know, education or, or through your career, and, and obviously it's just going to get sort of more refined over time. You know, you're not going to be able to. How, how are you going to be able to distinguish whether it is true or not? When that becomes, you know, almost gospel for you when you're making decisions because you're relying upon the, the, the integrity of the data to be correct or accurate. No, I, I'm with you. Hey, Martin, this has been awesome. I'm so happy you were able to make it onto the podcast. Really appreciate your coming here today. Well, thank you for having me. Hopefully this was enlightening for the audience. And the, I know rail is a very niche topic, I, you know, niche uh, in, in transportation supply chain because it's not as sort of widely known as, as trucking ocean freight. But I absolutely appreciate you having me on to talk about what we're doing and how we're really trying to uh, add value to the to the the rail logistics space. Yeah, sixty percent commodity shipment. I don't think that's you know small. I mean, I think we need to you know get more people thinking about it, especially for the environmental benefits you know that uh, that we've been talking about. Absolutely. And I always tell people you know just look around your house or look around your office or restaurant. Every single thing, whether it be the electricity for the lights or the the wood for your um, for the walls or the metal uh, for your desk, everything that, that you're using to be able to sort of function in life, uh, the, those are all driven by uh, commodity inputs. Um, yeah. And they, they all got to you, most likely in some form or fashion, it touched rail at some point in that move. So it's just, it really is a critical component of the supply chain and the economy. Right. Just hopefully touched it in the car, not on the rail itself. That's all I want to say about <laughs> That's that. Exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> gotcha. Well, once again, Martin, really appreciate your coming on the program. Well, thank you again for having me. I'd love to be back sometime. Thank you. Right on. As a reminder for our listeners, uh, you can find every episode of the Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast at spiro.ai backslash podcast. What I recommend you do is, you know, subscribe. If you think that it's a good podcast, why not? Maybe give us a good review. Martin, what do you think? Should people give us a good rating? 100%. When they have 100%. Uh, topics like rail, which is going to get people, absolutely everybody should be given uh, uh, raving reviews about the, the, the podcast. Exactly. Just do it for Martin, if not for me. But uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in, and we look forward to speaking to you with the next episode.